Right now, we're in the middle of a series entitled E, talking about Elijah. And today, it is my privilege to introduce to you a friend that I've known actually for seven eight years now, uh, Jared, uh, Jared Hodges. Um, Jared is actually on our team and he helps out with counseling and he helps out with uh, spiritual direction. And some of you have been able to, had the privilege of actually being able to hang out with Jared and be able to talk with him. And he has such a fantastic story and it's evident that God's love is on his life. So today he is going to be talking about 1 Kings chapter 19. He's going to be talking about depression. So y'all give a big one church welcome to Jared Hodges. All right, so uh, after the first service, usually when somebody preaches, their wife tells them, oh, you've done a great job or something like that. Well, my wife says, you are different than Chris. And I'm sitting there thinking, golly, that's what you tell somebody, you know, when uh, they fed you something, say, hmm, that's different, you know. And uh, I said, well, you know, Chris is kind of funny, and it's, it's hard to be funny when you're talking about depression and anxiety. And uh, so here's my attempt at humor. A guy walks into, a, uh, into his uh, psychiatrist's office and he goes, I'm a wigwam, I'm a teepee, I'm a wigwam, I'm a teepee. And the psychiatrist looks at him gently and says, relax, man, you're too tense. <laughs> okay, yeah, the rest of it, you get it later. <laughs> so anyway, on that note, um, Today we're looking at Elijah, and we're looking at how he dealt with some uh, depression and anxiety in his life. In James, in the New Testament, James tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. He was just like us in our nature and everything else about us. And yet when he prayed, something really cool happened. And the, in this case, what I want to focus on is that Elijah was a man just like us. He was just like me and you. And what we see in, in uh, chapter 19 is this man who is just like us, these awesome things happen to him, have, or have happened to him, and uh, verses are in uh, chapters 17 and 18, uh, where fire comes down from heaven, where he's fed by ravens, and where he's uh, prays, and the uh, rain stops for three years, all these great things. And so he was a man just like me and you, and then in chapter 19, all of a sudden, this guy that uh, we think is so awesome and has witnessed awesome things, he goes into this into this depressive state. And so what I want to do is I want, I want you guys to just journey with me on this dark road into some very dark subjects here uh, about depression and anxiety. And then Lord willing, we'll come back out of this darkness and we'll see uh, how God is a wonderful healer in our lives and how God can use us despite uh, some of the seasons in our life that aren't exactly the most pleasant. So here's our context. Elijah just led a religious coup d'etat. King Ahab has uh, married Jezebel. She's a foreign woman. And that was strictly against God's uh, commands. God had told the Israelites to marry within the, uh, the community of Israel. And the reason he did that is because he knows that our spouses influence us. We'll go as guys and as husbands, we'll go to great lengths to please our wives. We'll do a lot of things because, you know, the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You know, exactly. Yeah, same thing's true in my family. Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So, uh, you know, here, here as husbands, we go to great lengths to have a happy wife and have a happy home. And uh, God knew that when we go to great lengths, sometimes we'll do things that aren't exactly pleasing to him to make our wives happy if our wife is not living for God. And God told the Israelites 
Mary with inside, your, with inside uh, the community of Israel, this, this community of faith that believed in him and worshiped him. But Ahab was an evil king, and he married outside his community, married, as uh, Chris put it, a very hot lady who uh, was uh, also, what did you say, Chris? She was a Satanist, I believe. And so she brings in this influence of worshiping Baal. And uh, Ahab, to please his wife, began worshiping Baal. And because he's the king, then he sets the example for all the community of Israel. The rest of the community, uh, the great majority of it, begins turning from God and turning to this false religion. And what we have here is that... Uh, that uh, the whole community of Israel is worshiping somebody that God does not intend. God intends for us to only worship him. And the Bible says that he's a jealous God. He's jealous for our love. He's jealous for our affection toward him. And he does not let and does not uh, allow or won't tolerate, rather, us worshiping something else. And so here we are. So the, let's, let's look at this. In... At the end of chapter 18, it says, uh, it says, sure enough, the sky was soon black with clouds. Remember Ahab, had pray, or sorry, Elijah had prayed and said uh, that it wasn't going to rain for three years. But then to show that he served the real God, he says to Ahab, he says, uh, he says it's going to rain. He goes, I'm going to pray. And sure enough, the sky was soon black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Remember, he had just uh, fought uh, the prophets of Baal, those 400 guys, and uh, Elijah had slaughtered them there in uh, the Kidron Valley on Mount Carmel. And this great, uh, God showed up in a great way with uh, coming down, sending fire from heaven to, to consume the uh, sacrifice. And so, sure enough, the sky was soon black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Now the Lord gave special strength to Elijah, and he tucked his cloak into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. And when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel what Elijah had done, and that he had slaughtered the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods also kill me, if by this time tomorrow I fail to take your life like you uh, took the lives of of those prophets. And Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the desert, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around and he saw some bread break, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more for there's a long journey ahead of you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord told him, or the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. And I alone and left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the windstorm. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied again, I zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets and I alone am left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Go back the way you came and travel the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed to bow or kissed him. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I come and I just uh, stand before your people. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, that uh, your message of hope and deliverance touch us. Lord, that you would touch our lives where we are. Lord, that you would meet us where we are in the midst of uh, the pain and suffering. Lord, in the midst of victories of life, Lord, that you would remind us of who you are. Uh, you continue to call us and that you continue to uh, use us no matter what station in life we are. I pray this in your son's name. Um, Chris asked me, he said, you know what? One of the things that people see when they see pastors a lot of times in, in I guess, traditional churches is these figures who stand up and they proclaim the word of God and uh, never really see the true person that is proclaiming the word of God. And oftentimes we tend to put these guys on pedestals and we tend to uh, think that they're so perfect. But you know what, it's, it's when we see the brokenness of a person and see their true humanity that uh, we begin to relate. And so I can tell you right now that I can relate to this passage. Uh, four years ago, I lost my job. I was, uh, I was one of the pastors at a church here in town. And uh, due to cutbacks, uh, they uh, sacrificed my position, sacrificed another one. And just a few weeks after that, my wife came to me and said, I no longer want to be married. And uh, so despite uh, a divorce, an unwanted divorce, I went through this dark time in my life of despair and depression, kind of like Elijah. And I can tell you right now that God pulls us through these hard times, that God can pull us through these times where we think that we can never uh, serve him again. Because oftentimes in our lives, when, when we hit these rock-bottom places in our lives, we begin to tell ourselves, and others tell ourselves, that, you know what? If you were truly victorious in Christ, if you truly lived a victorious life, you wouldn't be in depression. 
You know, Satan comes to us. The Bible says that his job, the enemy's job, is to kill, steal, and destroy. And if he can kill, steal, and destroy your hope that you have in Christ, then he's won a victory. And part of, that, uh, part of the victory that we have is in Christ, that even in the midst of depression, even in the midst of anxiety and despair, when we're starting to tell ourselves and when we hear other people, or we think we hear other people saying, you'll never succeed or you'll never serve God again, that's, it's a lie straight, out of, straight from Satan's mouth where he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But what we do, we see from this book, from Elijah right here in chapter 19, God using him in the midst of his depression, God using him in the midst of terrible fear and anxiety. And with that, let's dive in here and uh, let's unpack this. So in verse... Uh, Right there in verse 19, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, may the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah had just reestablished the, uh, the worship of Jehovah. Thousands of people had come in and cried out, the Lord, he is God. And you can imagine that the excitement that Elijah felt as, as the people were returning to God and he's, he's, he's had this, uh, this religious and political coup d'etat where uh, the, the old way of worshiping Baal he believes is overthrown, and now they're turning back to God. The people are coming back, and Ahab is running back to Jezebel to tell her what had happened. And, and I guess Elijah probably thought, this is wonderful. This is great. This spiritual revival is going to go all the way to the, to the capital, all the way to the throne, and Jezebel is going to repent when she hears about the cool things that God has done, how God showed up on Mount Carmel in a wonderful way, and she's going to repent, and she's going to put her faith in God, and... God is just going to be, we're going to have a theocracy here where God is worshipped all over and the country will again be restored to God. And so with this excitement and the, and, and this, the people chanting, echoing in his ears, he takes his robe and stuffs it in his belt so he can run fast and he runs ahead of the chariot, 15 miles at least, ahead of this chariot all the way back to the capital city of Jezreel where Jezebel lives. And Ahab gets there and tells him, Hang on a second, just wait outside for a second. I best break this news to Jezebel. So he goes in and he tells Jezebel. And rather than having this expectation that Elijah has of this wonderful revival keeping on going, she sends out this message to him. Said, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. So rather than expecting God to show up in another miraculous way, as he did, where's God's answer? Where's God's answer? This answer is not what he expected. I'm going to kill you. And so what's he do? He fears for his life. He fears because he knows what this woman can do. He knows her, her, the extent of her influence. And he runs for it. He runs for his life. And he takes his servant. And he drops his servant off out in the middle of the desert or out uh, in this town in Beersheba, which is out in the middle of nowhere. It's the furthest town south in Israel. And he continues on into the desert all by himself. And a lot of times for us, when we have this wonderful experience in our lives, something exciting like this, then oftentimes we also also have this this plummet. Uh, I believe it was uh, Spurgeon, this great pastor, who said, the extent of our depth of depression is reflected in how high the excitement has been or how high the experience has been. And... 
Before Elijah, you know, he's had this wonderful mountaintop experience, and then he falls into despair. He falls into depression, and it's so bad that in verse 3 we say, Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down underneath a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than any of my ancestors who have already died. It's interesting, for people who suffer with depression, you, know, you don't have to be clinically diagnosed. You can go through a season of your life of sadness. You can go through a season where you, where you feel that nothing's working. And a lot of times this causes us to want to withdraw from everybody. It causes us to want to seek our own isolation and insulate ourselves. But, you know, that's really the farthest thing than what we need. A lot of times we just need to be with people and we need to be with the family of God. It's interesting in the New Testament, God gives the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives us each gifts. And these gifts that he gives us are things like encouragement, things like uh, uh, preaching, teaching, uh, hospitality, uh, organization and administration. He gives all these gifts to help out each other. Because if we all had one, if we had all the gifts, we wouldn't need each other. So God gives each of us gifts according to his purpose so that we can build up the church and encourage each other. So when we isolate and withdraw ourselves because of some emotional things that we're going through, what we're doing, we're doing one of two things. We are withdrawing ourselves and depriving ourselves of the gifts that God has given others to minister to us. The other thing that we're doing is God has given us gifts even in the midst of our depression, even in the midst of what we're going through, to minister to the other people there at the church. So we're depriving them of the gift that God has given to you. So that's one of the important reasons that God gives these gifts is to encourage us. But Elijah, rather than staying put, rather than knowing that God will take care of him as he did with, against the 450 prophets of Baal, he runs for it. He goes out in the wilderness. He seeks isolation. He seeks time by himself. He leaves the one person, his servant, who has taken care of him. He even leaves him there, and he continues on out into the desert. And you can imagine that he's... he's He's worried, he's tired, he's sad, he's filled with grief and anxiety. And you can imagine the desert here because the, the Bible says that he finds a lone, solitary broom tree. And these are just these little scrub bushes. I mean, they're, they're not too terribly tall. You can imagine this long, flat desert, you know, like you see in the, in, the, in the movies and whatnot. And there's this little tree standing there. And Elijah finds this tree and he sits down underneath it. And he's just wearied with grief. He's wearied with anxiety. And he begins to lay down and lay his head down. And finally says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. What's interesting is, is that Jonah kind of did the same thing. Way back, God tells Jonah, this prophet, he says, go to Nineveh, preach to them, and tell them that if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy the city. So if you know the story, uh, Jonah, he doesn't like Ninevites. He wants God to destroy the city. So he says, I'm not going to go there. And he gets on a boat, goes the opposite way from Nineveh. Uh, God causes this great big storm to come up. And uh, the sailors throw him overboard. And God has prepared this giant fish. The fish swallows Jonah. And for three days, they travel underwater straight towards Nineveh. Because God's purposes will prevail no matter what. 
They go straight towards Nineveh. The fish spits Jonah out. And during that time in the fish's stomach, he kind of has a change of heart in a way. And he decides, well, you know what? It's better to uh, follow God than sit in the stinking fish's belly. So he goes and he preaches. And the people repent. And he thinks, well, this isn't going to last. So he goes outside of the city and he sits down. And we know the first part of the fish, but a lot of times I don't think we've finished the rest of it, which is he goes and he sits outside. He sits underneath this, uh, this, this or he sits on the ground and God causes this little uh, vine to grow up to shade him because it's really hot. But he sits there looking at the city, waiting for God to just destroy it because he's thinking, boy, they're never going to repent, but they do. And he gets mad and he gets angry at God. And he kind of asks, God asks him a question. He says, why should you be angry? And we see this kind of parallel here that Elijah too, he's gone, he's preached. And yeah, there was this great big revival, but not the total revival that he wanted to. And so he flees for it and he sits outside under this broom tree. And it's really neat the way that God uh, touches our lives. Because here's the, here's the big idea. It says, God offers hope in the midst of depression and anxiety. I think a lot of times we feel that God, that when, we're, when we have depression and when we have anxiety, when we're worried about something, when we let things eat our minds away, uh, that we begin to believe that something's wrong with us. Either we believe that because somebody has inadvertently said that, or has communicated that in some way to us, or we just believe that, you know what, something's wrong with us, God can never use us, I'm too, uh, uh, there's nothing good enough with me that would make God want to use me. But what we really need is God's gentle touch and God's gentle mercy, and this is exactly what he does. Remember, he laid down there in verse five, it says he laid down and he slept under the broom tree, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him, he didn't come up and kick him and say, wake up. He didn't come up and hit him with a staff or anything like that or, or, or anything. He comes up and he gently touches him, a touch, something gentle, something that communicates love, something that communicates compassion and mercy. You know, when we touch someone, whether it's shaking hands or a pat on the back, whether it's a gentle caress, these things communicate so much to us. And this is exactly what God communicates here to Elijah. He says, get up and eat. And Elijah looked around, and there beside his head was some, uh, some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. You know, I, I think it's also neat that God planned all this for him. God planned that he would journey 40 days and 40 nights. God planned that he would meet with him at this very special place called Mount Sinai. The last time that Mount Sinai was visited in the Bible was when the Israelites escaped from Egypt. When Moses led them out, they crossed the Red Sea in this mighty way that God had uh, Moses lift up his staff and the waters divided and the Israelites walked straight through on dry ground. And the chariots of the Egyptians came through and God caused it to close upon them. God delivered them from their enemies that way. Led them in the desert until they came to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God met with Moses. 
in a very special way. God met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments, the law that the people were supposed to live by, and this law that would keep them safe, would keep them uh, in emotional health, this law that would keep them from, uh, from adultery, would keep them from stealing, would keep them from murder, would keep them from expressing anger in inappropriate ways. It's okay to be angry. God says don't be, or be angry, but don't sin. Don't sin in your anger. So God met with Moses on top of this mountain hundreds of years ago in a very special way and gave him the, the law. And here we see that uh, as Elijah's laying there, this angel comes and touches him and says, wake up, get something to eat, get something to drink. Because the journey ahead of you is too much if you don't. You see, Moses wandered in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and God met with him. Jesus, after his baptism in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit led him away from everybody into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting, both of them fasting without food or water because God wanted to meet with them in a special way. And here we have Elijah. God says, eat, drink, because you've got a 40-day journey ahead of you. God provides for us, even in the midst of our despair, provides our exactly what we need, the gentle touch, the gentle reminder, the food, the sustenance, everything that we need for our own progress to meet with him in a very special way. In uh, verse 9, I remember, I'm sorry, in verse 8, so he got up and he ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And then the Lord said, what are you doing here, Elijah? It wasn't a question of, what are you doing here? Why aren't you back there in Israel ministering to people? Why aren't you back there fighting for, uh, for my name? Why aren't you back there at Mount Carmel? It was just a very simple, gentle way that God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Causing Elijah to think about what it was that he was doing there at that time, at that point in time. What was he doing there? It's, it's interesting, Elijah's response in verse 10 says, Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And God has this really gentle answer to him. He doesn't say, well, man up, go on out of here. God just says simply, go out and stand before me on the mountain. You see, Elijah had God had holed himself up in a cave. He had found a cave, maybe the very cave that Moses had found hundreds of years later. But he found this cave, and he was down in this cave seeking, just wanting to isolate himself and to die. And, uh, but God doesn't let him. God gives him a simple command. He says, go out and stand before me on the mountain. The Lord told him, and as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. And it was such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. 
You see those things that Elijah experienced there on the mountaintop were spectacular things, spectacular ways that God could show up. He could have showed up there in the windstorm. I mean, think about that, the awesome power of God hitting the side of that mountain as Elijah stood there watching, torrents of wind just whipping around the side of the mountain, and you can almost imagine like a hurricane or a, or a tornado just ripping the mountain to shreds. You think, wow, surely God would be in that. That's powerful because we equate power with God. We equate that God always shows up in powerful ways because that's a lot of times what we see in the Bible, that God shows up at the nick of time in these powerful ways and overcomes all his enemies. He could have shown up in the fire. He had already shown up in the fire on Mount Carmel. He had shown up there and rained fire from heaven and proved to everybody that he was God and is God. He could have been there in the earthquake. The mountain shook, rocks fell apart. I can imagine standing there at the side of a cave or in a cave with rocks falling on your head and dust going everywhere, and you're thinking, oh, good heavens, God is about to come down upon me, especially if you're feeling in the pits like this guy was. But he wasn't there. But then after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there's the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, it's interesting, God speaks to us all in very personal ways. He's called Elijah by name. What are you doing here, Elijah? Peter, when in the New Testament, after Peter had denied Christ three times, Christ shows up to Peter on the lake with some disciples, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And then again, he says, Peter, do you love me? He calls us by name. And this is just to say, I mean, I don't sit here and I think that God calls each and every one of us with an auditory voice. But what he does, he speaks to us personally where we are and touches us very gently in our greatest need, in the times when we need him the most, so personally that he says, he calls us by name. But Elijah's thoughts are still uh, are still twisted and skewed by his emotions. Remember, he's, he's faced all this stuff and he's wandered through the desert and he's probably been thinking to himself this whole time, what have I done all this for? I've zealously, what's he say? He goes, I've zealously served the Lord and he had. He stood up by himself proclaiming that God is God in the face of thousands of people and 450 prophets of Baal. And he said, God is God. He zealously proclaimed the name of the Lord. He had done this. This is exactly what he told God when God asked him. He says, I've served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They had done that. It's all true. They've killed every one of your prophets. That's almost true. They've killed most of them, but they're still preserved 7,000 others. And he says, and now they're trying to kill me. I'm alone left, and they're trying to kill me. You see, a lot of our reality is our perspective. And when we're, our eyes are not focused on God and focused on his love and his, what he's done and his mercy and his grace and what he does in our lives and can do in our lives, then our perspective gets 
twisted a little bit. And when our perspective gets twisted, then our reality becomes twisted as well. And here Elijah is saying, there's nobody left, it's just me. And now they're trying to kill me too. Well, the fact is that there were others out there. I think a lot of times when, when we try to live for God in our community, we try to live for God in our workplace, we become afraid to do this because we think, oh my gosh, am I the only Christian in my workplace? Am I the only Christian that's there? How can I possibly stand up for God? Well, you know what? The fact is, that's a twisted view of our reality. Maybe because not everybody out there is, is proclaiming who they are in Christ. And so our reality becomes we are the only ones. We become isolated because we haven't stood for God, neither has the Christian stand, uh, next to us that we don't know as a Christian because they have not stood for God either publicly. Might have done it privately. But students, I remember being in school and uh, I wouldn't stand for God. No, I, might, I, I was a Christian, but I wasn't about to look weird. But you know what? You don't know that the student sitting right next to you might be a Christian too in the same fear that's holding you. But here, Elijah says, I've zealously served God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets, and I'm alone. And now they're trying to kill me too. And God says to him, he gives him a commission. He doesn't let him off the hook. I think it's really interesting the fact that Elijah is one of two people that didn't die. Uh, there is, I can't remember the guy's name. He was in, the, in Genesis, I believe, that uh, I think it was Methuselah. He walked with God and then was not. God took him away. And the same thing happens to Elijah later on. And he does not die. God takes him up in this fiery chariot. But here he is, one of the guys that did not die, so to speak, and he's wishing for death. He still wishes for death. Even in the midst of this, he's, he's still saying, they're trying to kill me too. And he's already prayed that he might die. His lot in life looks so bleak and so hopeless. And yet, even in that hopelessness and bleakness, God shows himself through four different ways. A hurricane, fire, an earthquake, and a still, small, gentle whisper. And it's in that whisper that Elijah recognizes who God is. He'd already seen God show up in the firestorm on Mount Carmel. He'd already seen God provide for his needs by the ravens by feeding him at the brook. He'd seen these spectacular things in his life. And he'd kind of, I think, put God in a box by thinking that God would solve all of Israel's problems and his problems in a spectacular and mighty way. But the fact of it is, God proved himself that he doesn't always show up in the spectacular. Sometimes he shows up in the gentle voice that we need in the midst of our sadness. And what are you doing here? You know, God gives us victory over life, or victory over death. He gives us mercy so that we can extend mercy to others. He gives us forgiveness so that when we've been hurt so deeply that we just can't seem to let go of the hurt, we can extend mercy and grace to somebody else who has hurt us because we've experienced it ourselves. And if you haven't experienced the grace and the mercy of God through being forgiven for your own sins, how can you possibly give that to somebody else? 
But what we see is right here in verse 15, it says, The Lord told him, says, Go back the way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Heziel to be king of Aram, then Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, uh, son of Shaphat, to replace you as prophet. So he's going to replace his, uh, he's going to have his replacement. And everyone who escapes from Heziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape from Jehu will be killed by Elisha. And here's the great part. He, he lets Elijah in on something right here. Elijah's all been thinking, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that served you. I've served you zealously, and they're out to kill me. And there's nobody left in Israel. In verse 18, it says, Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So there's hope. There's hope in those numbers. There's hope in the people of God. There's hope in God. And if you're in the midst of depression, if you're in a place right now in your life where you're thinking, I can't get out of this, let me say that there is hope. God offers hope, he offers joy, he offers deliverance, and he offers it now. Service to him now, service to stand for him, despite all the things that you feel about yourself and despite all the things that you feel that you're unworthy of. God can use you in your workplace, he can use you in your schools, he can use you on the mission field, he can use you anywhere that he chooses. I don't, it doesn't, take people overnight to overcome these things. Most people, it takes a long time to overcome depression. It takes a long time to overcome anxiety. And I don't believe that Elijah overcame those just because of the gentle whisper that, was, uh, that God offered him. But the gentle whisper was what he needed to draw him out of that cave of isolation that he holed himself up in and on Mount uh, Sinai. The gentle whisper was what reminded him of the love that God had for him and the self-worth that God placed in him. God loved him just as he loves you and offered his son to die for us because of our sins. And God calls him, even in the midst of his depression, God calls him and gives him a task, gives him three tasks. So I believe that God still can use us in the midst of the things that we're going through. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I pray that you would use this, Lord, that you would use your word, and uh, that people would find encouragement in you, Lord, that you would uh, use us to encourage others, and Lord, though things seem dark and bleak, Lord, that we would put away the distractions, whirlwinds and the firestorms and the earthquakes that shake our lives. Lord, that we would put them aside so that we could hear your small, gentle voice asking us, why are you here when you have so much more to offer us? Lord, I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.